Welcome to KnowledgeCast. This is a look into the world of knowledge management, information management, data management, and everything in between. This is brought to you by Enterprise Knowledge. I'm Zach Wall, founder and CEO of EK, and today we're speaking with Rashad Najjar of GE Fernovo, where is the organizational learning leader. Rashad, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our uh, knowledge cast. Well, me too. I saw you speak, I guess it was in Davos back in the fall, and I was really impressed with your story as well as your style. I really liked the way that you shared your experiences. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I'm grateful to you for being on. Before we get to that, I always like to to begin with this very simple question that is not so simple to answer, and that is, what is your definition of knowledge management? Yes, correct. And I like this question because, you know, there's a standard uh, definition of KM uh, coming from ISO 3041. It's a process of creating, identifying, analyzing, distributing knowledge for organizational value. But that's really high-level abstract definition. And my definition, based on my personal experience, it really comes down to the process of creating adaptive spaces. For example, communities, affinity groups, or any type of space where tacit knowledge can be extracted collectively, co-constructed, consolidated, and reused in situation where we want to build technical capabilities. So it's really about that tacit knowledge, the aim of building capabilities and expertise. Excellent. So I like that definition a lot. And it's actually kind of different from what a lot of our guests Mm -hmm. say. You're still sharing the life cycle from tacit to harnessing within technologies so that it can be reused. But you're talking about a little bit of a different way. So I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into this. Let's start with this term, this idea of creating adaptive spaces. Tell me more about that. What does that mean for you? What does that mean at GE Vernova? Yes, exactly. It's all about the people, connecting people together and offering them the right space, climate, to think out loud, to share, to ask who can help me. Because one of the barriers for knowledge sharing is being intimidated or feeling unsafe to go outside and ask who can help me. So those psychological safety, as Amy Edmondson in her book explained very well. So we want really to establish this kind of safety where everyone is allowed to connect, to go and to ask who can help me. Those spaces are really important and that's the role of knowledge manager. Rather than focusing on technology, it's his or her role to create those spaces. So Rashad, you're speaking my language here, but I want to push back a little bit. It is easy to say, create a safe space. But what we know is in today's corporate entities, there's a lot of fear, right? People are afraid of saying something that their boss will disagree with and it'll get them in trouble, or they're afraid of sharing something that's proprietary to a client and crosses one of those red lines. They're afraid of sharing their knowledge because maybe it'll make them less critical to the organization and their job will be at risk. How do you actually make it safe to share tacit knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yes, and th- they are afraid of being persecuted. And we have all the biases. Knowledge is power. Why I need to share my knowledge? Knowledge is power. So all this cool thinking, they are rooted in our education system. I, I don't want to expand a lot on this uh, point, but I believe educating our early 
and younger learners and leaders from school that sharing and collaborations are key to success. And our university system, when competition is individualized, I have higher notes and I am competitive and I am winning. So a lot of work has should be done in the education space. But back to the professional space, it's all about the behaviors, showing the leadership. And the number one success factor for the adoption of any knowledge management program is the sponsorship, leadership at all levels, not only at executive level. We will talk more about the executive sponsorship later on. But those working in the field, those operational workers, influencers who have influence on their colleagues working on them, but they are not necessarily have higher job posts or ranking in the organizations, those informal networks, the brokers and connectors. So I work with them and I look into them. So I do it by iteration. One size fits all approach doesn't work. So I go and work closely with the small groups, have quick wins, show them, market them, and then the other groups will follow and they will say, oh, we want also, for example, activity or we want to do the same and it becomes contagious. So very much grassroots marketing here, but you're implying something that I want to say explicitly. You're making everybody else jealous, right? If you can make one group successful, give them something cool that's really working for them, then others start lining up. If you were to just go to them and push it on them, they would reject it. But by making them wait for it after one of their other groups gets it, it creates a line. Yes, and, and people want to be at the front of the line. Right? Exactly. And the good news, 80% of problems or challenges at international groups, they are similar. So if there's one team in one region in the world facing some onboarding issues, there's 80% chance another team in another corner in the world facing the same issue. So solving for one group is solving for yeah. 80% of them. I love that statistic. And it's so true, right? I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a global organization and they've said, well, our group's really different from all the other groups. And and then you go to the other groups, they say the same thing, but they're expressing the same challenges, the same issues. So it's it's great to have a, a number around that. Now, what are you doing at GE Vernova today? Can you tell us the story that you've shared with me a little bit? Oh, okay. It's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. We got time. Go for it. Uh, It is a 10 years uh, story. Well, let's communicate the key messages. I started the program 10 years ago as community analyst. So I was analyzing the trends, the metrics, the behaviors within online community engagement. What makes a community vibrant, engaged, active? And slowly it has moved into more building the knowledge ecosystem. All the modules like onboarding, lessons learned, feedback of experience, mentoring, coaching, all those knowledge activities were built based on demand. So whenever there is an organizational demand, we build those activities. And then we move to deploying a global knowledge sharing communities and we put it in the place and slowly We transformed or we built on top of those communities the transformation to a learning organization. So we put knowledge management at the centerpiece of a learning organization. And we said how we can collectively learn together and develop new services. For example, cybersecurity back in 2016 or 15, it was a new topic similar to generative AI. 
every right. five, six years, we have a new trend. And what uh, what's important here is there was lack of skills, of competencies in this field. So how we can scale up, upskill our expertise when there's a shortage in the market? So that's the objective of the learning organization rooted deep down into the knowledge management. So that's a little bit high level my journey and how we transformed the knowledge sharing program into a learning organization. So you've hit on one of the things that many of our listeners have heard me say, I love the organizations that are smashing learning and knowledge management together. Yes. They go together so naturally and it becomes this wonderful self-feeding beast where those that have benefited from that knowledge ecosystem, from that learning organization, are then even more willing to share their own knowledge and support their colleagues in, in their learning journeys. You mentioned this knowledge ecosystem, and my interpretation of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that different people learn in different ways, and you want to give each learner the full menu or access to all different types of knowledge and experiences so they can choose to learn in the way they want. Am I interpreting that correctly? Tell me more about that. You're definitely correct. And everyone has its own style and preference to learning, especially in engineering culture, as they like to go back to textbooks and to scientific journals. But also we have another type of population where they are more social centric and they want to learn with their peers. So providing three types of learning, social, informal, and formal, and the famous rule of uh, of 70, 2010, 70% of learning is uh, informal, 20% is social, and 10% is formal, which means classroom-based or instructor-led based. So offering those three types of learning was part of my role and responsibility to design this competency-based learning framework. So at the center, uh, we put at the heart of this framework, the competency or the skills-based organization, and we asked ourselves how we can acquire this skill using those three different types of learning. So when we get into the complete knowledge ecosystem and these ideas of social, informal, formal, informal and formal, you know, you, you hire your instructional designers, you create the job aids, you create the training, set up the classroom, but social is tough and it's where you began, but you know, you mentioned these engineers, you mentioned these subject matter experts. How do you inspire a very busy person toward the end of their career to participate in social learning? How do you get them to share their knowledge with others? Yes. So you, you mentioned the, here one profile, which are the senior experts in their end career. Those are different from the early careers. And for every yeah. persona, or profiles, there's different type of addressing this kind of promoting learning and sharing. For late careers or seniors, they are looking for recognition. They are looking for notoriety, especially if it's been tough years going through a lot of merger acquisition, changes yeah. in the product. They are lost in the middle and they search for recognition. So one of the ways is to do some kind of storytelling with the purpose of building expertise. So we ask our experts, tell us what do you like your network to know about you? Or what do you like to be recognized at? Those two questions are key to start a conversation and discussion. And then slowly we can guide our interview toward our objectives. For example, building a competency and a blade design or rotor design. 
So this kind of approach for senior experts works a lot. For early careers, it's about uh, inclusion, diversity, and uh, uh, induction. So we want to make sure they feel comfortable while integrating their organization. And here I'd like to differentiate between onboarding and induction. Uh, onboarding yeah. normally focus on providing the set of trainings, the resources to start their career. Induction is more about integrating them into the network and making yeah. sure they know who to connect to and who to ask for help. And that's where the knowledge sharing communities were of a great help, especially for early career engineers. I like that term of induction, and I would infer that there's also a cultural element to that as right. It's not just about connecting them in the network or telling them where to go. It's it's helping them understand their place and giving them a sense of, it's so important to the, the younger generations in particular, a sense of meaning and purpose, the, the why of the job. Yeah. Am I correct in that? Yeah, cool. especially uh, this generation, they are looking for meaning in their job. The enterprise company, Global 300,000 employees, is, is not anymore the best choice for this young generation. More they are looking to, to fulfill their own mission. Uh, that's why we see a lot of uh, YouTube channels, uh, social media, startups, entrepreneurs. They want to express themselves. So now we're getting into also the business value of this, yep. right? If we're giving these folks that experience of induction, we're giving them that sense of meaning. What we know is that they're more likely to stay with the organization. They're more likely to be performative in their roles. They're, they're, you're going to cut down on recruiting costs and, and you're going to improve your retention. There's real ROI and business value associated with exactly what you're talking about as well. Are you measuring that? What I experience is that the learning community is actually pretty good at measuring efficacy of their efforts. KM historically has been pretty bad. Yes. So I'm hoping that you're using your learning skills to measure. Yes, a great question. I love it. And let me share with you this uh, quick story. Several years ago, uh, I had a legendary engineering leader. I was pitching my, the first time for him as a knowledge sharing program. And I told him, we need to share, collaborate, learn from each other, help each other, support, ask, and all my arguments. And he replied, okay, Rashad, translate that into dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. It was a, a tough situation, but it made me stronger and it has really took the program to the next level. And then I started to research how to quantify knowledge, how to measure knowledge. And after a lot of research, I found out that knowledge itself, it can be quantified or measured. What we can measure really is its impact and how much uh, the reusability and how much we can reuse this knowledge in critical situations. So at the end, we found out a formula to measure the cost avoidance and the risk mitigation. So how much we are avoiding cost of non-quality of repetitive tasks and how much we are mitigating risk because we are reusing our consolidated and approved knowledge, not any knowledge, uh, those only who were approved by uh, the expert within their communities. So that was one of the KPIs that I put in place. You hit on something there that I'm hearing more and more, and I'm really thrilled about mitigating risk. I think historically, the quote unquote, easy way of measuring the value of KM was the, the productivity measure saying, well, if 20 to 30% of a knowledge worker's time is spent looking for information, waiting for answers, recreating knowledge that existed, 
then that's a lot of time saved and we can translate that to dollars kind of. But mitigating risk is in a way, I think more measurable and a more direct savings, right? If we're keeping somebody from being hurt on the job because they acted on an old piece of information, if we're helping somebody perform more effectively for a customer, we're going to retain that customer. We're, we're mitigating the risk of losing them. If we're managing our knowledge more effectively and that translates to content and data, we're ensuring that we're not giving an old piece of information to somebody outside our firewall that is going to get us fine. So that risk mitigation, I think, needs to be talked about more in TAM. Can you go a little bit more deeply there in, in how you translate your work to risk mitigation? Yep, exactly. And that's because it was valuable to talk about risk mitigation because we run the organization as projects and we go through the project life cycle, initiation, strategy design, implementation, feedback of experience and closure. We have ingested as a project review, or let's say we call this the knowledge review during the closure phase of the project. And we ask ourselves what we have learned and this project and what should be, we should avoid in terms of risk mitigation. And we have defined the multiple perspectives like safety, environmental impact, retention of critical competencies and retention of skills. Then we have defined the related to customer satisfaction. Even if they are qualitative, that's no, there's no harm in being qualitative. So those different type of perspectives very related to risk mitigation, we have identified those groups. And then for every project, we captured lessons learned and those risk mitigations. And the way we have done it, traditionally in traditional organizations, they do it by a committee. The moment you put in place a committee, you are deemed to failure. So instead of putting a committee, we, we had a distributed approach decentralized approach. And we said every community, every knowledge sharing community that we put in place, now they are responsible for their respective risks and for their respective lessons learned. And they should retain those risks and rediffuse them and ingest them into future projects. So we eliminated the risk of choosing the top five, like as committee do normally, or then the committee will be disbanded because the committee members are too busy firefighting the customer projects. So now every community owns its own lessons learned and risk, and they are uh, making sure to review those uh, risks in their project. So I want to praise you for this. There's a lot of maturity in what you just said. First of all, the idea of effectively identifying the types of risk that KM learning program can mitigate and then encouraging those committee, really like community conversations and capture of learnings in each one. Burns down the silos. It removes, I think, a lot of the bias of an organization. And it's also presenting very clear targets. You're not asking somebody, share everything that you know, share everything about everything. You're saying, talk to me about safety. Talk to me about retention of skills. It's giving people more of a manageable target. And I think that that is both valuable and meaningful for an organization. So well done. I always like to talk about an organization's failures. I think that one of the things you can learn most from is, is where we fail. How do you get your folks talking about failures? Because you go back to safety, right? It's easy to talk about that awesome thing I did and pat myself on the back. 
but it's really tough to say, hey, I really screwed this up. Let's <laughs> not do that again. How, how do you get somebody talking about that? Yeah, and it is against human nature to talk about our failures. We can't talk about our success stories. But the way we have done it is to change the mindset from fixed mindset to growth mindset. And this famous book will talk a growth mindset whenever they face a failure situation, they ask how I can do it better next time, what I should change to do it better next time, instead of sitting in front of failure and saying, oh, I can't do it, or I don't have the competency. So we put it in terms of a learning experience, and that's, again, back to the learning organization, the safe climate to go out and to think and to share out loud my stories and my experiences. They are not anymore persecuted or they are not afraid of being a failure. Instead, they are now looked of being like heroes, sharing their experiences and avoiding failure in the next time. I love that. The, the hero that will prevent others from failing. That's a, a great positioning of that. I, I like that a lot. We talked about all the ways that you can capture tacit knowledge and, and move towards a true knowledge sharing and, and learning organization. Now we talk about the technology. How do you capture that stuff digitally? How do you get it to the right people? How do you share it? How do you ensure that the information, the knowledge, the data gets richer over time? Yes, uh, knowing that technology is only 20% of the equation. And it was very difficult in my early uh, stages 10 years ago because they reduced the scope of knowledge management to technology. And they even diluted knowledge management to technology. For example, uh, the first two years, uh, they said, okay, go to SharePoint or SharePoint of Rafael. And they associated SharePoint to me to knowledge management. And it was very difficult to change the vocabularies. For that challenge, I have defined something called the KTM, Knowledge Deficiency Moment. So I describe as narratives some situations. I told them, okay, if you are in a situation, you are incapable to continue your work, and you are asking who can help me to overcome this challenge, or you have an idea and you want to test it, and you are searching for a focus group, those are KDMs, knowledge deficiency moments. And this is exactly what is my role. So I had to educate people about what I'm doing. It's not a SharePoint administrator who put in place some communities. <laughs> <laughs> so the first two years was really education. And when we installed those moments, KDMs, and now they are aware that whenever they have an issue or an obstacle, in their work, this is due to the lack of proper knowledge management. And this is how we started to capture those moments. We defined like 10 situations where I am incapable to continue my, my work. And now what I should do? I go to my community. I go to the platform. I go to ask my colleagues or, or search through the taxonomy. Uh, what are the latest versions? So the technology, it should be reflections of the processes of the behaviors. And uh, we customized fully the SharePoint. So if you look, we, we built a custom user experience and user interface mimicking our organizational processes and uh, behaviors. So when they go to technology platform, they won't see like menus and buttons. They see their processes and their workflows. 
So Rashad, here you are singing the the song, right? Like knowledge management is not SharePoint. SharePoint is not knowledge management. And then you end up by saying, but we use SharePoint. I, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you put a wrapper around it. You made it look more like the business yeah. than like SharePoint. And, yeah. and that makes a ton of sense. One of the ways historically we've seen SharePoint kind of run amok is that it, it gets out of control. Mm-hmm. You know, too many folders, too much contents, too easy to just drop and dump stuff in there. Governance comes into play here, right? And this yeah. is yeah. back to the 80% of KM rather than the 20% of technology. How do you keep a SharePoint environment healthy? Yes, and add to the mix in a global uh, companies, you have a parallel universe. You have Yammer. Back that time, it was called Yammer. Now it's called Viva Engage. Yeah. And I'm sure the coming years will be called something else. Maybe Copilot, Vivac, something like that. <laughs> so uh, you have parallel universe and you mentioned a keyword governance. When we created the knowledge sharing communities, it was a result of the governance process. And first of all, we created the knowledge architecture. What are the set of limited communities or domains that we should put in place and how they are interconnected. So once we define the knowledge architecture, we sanction it by our chief technology officer and our chief engineering office. So those who are recognized by the company as chief expert or chief consulting, those are on the top career. So we sponsored those communities by then. So now we have the legitimacy that all the prob- all the solutions offered in those communities are supervised and monitored in terms of their quality by the chief engineering office. So now the program is the go-to program if you want to have some trusted and curated source of knowledge. If you want to have some noise, you can go to Yammer. I'm not against Microsoft. They are doing a great job, but the application of Yammer, we saw it in a great organization, is very noisy. And then I went also to those Yammer leaders and I invited them, included them into our communities, and I offered them this role of being leader and moderator within our program. You hit on something important here. There's different environments for different levels of trusted knowledge, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Yammer is pretty loose and you're, there's probably some pretty clear caveats that say, hey, don't go and act on this, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. learn from it, engage in it. Whereas there's probably corporately less knowledge that has gone through these more stringent reviews. How do you get the looser knowledge to graduate mm-hmm. to the tighter, more reviewed knowledge? Because there's good ideas there, right? There's yeah, new ideas, yeah. there's innovation. How does that flow? How do you facilitate that flow of knowledge yes. maturing within the organization? So I had to position our program within the knowledge life cycle, as you mentioned, how to transition it to, to formal systems. We have our engineering formal systems where there is a workflow for approval and for review and for changes. So how I positioned our program, I told them, or I illustrated the program in the capture phase. So we help to capture free form of thinking ideas. And through the discussion forum, through collectively elaborating them, and then we have some kind of voting mechanism and approval mechanism to classify a solution or to classify a response as a solution. So we have those expert 
monitoring the discussion forums and they approve a response as a helpful answer. Once it is approved, we transfer it to a wiki system and we've done it in automatic way. Community discussions that are approved by experts are automatically transformed into wiki articles. And then we invite again the discussion participants to update the wiki article. So we lowered the barrier of entry to create a wiki. We have done the heavy lifting to create a wiki. And then we deliver it to those experts and saying, please add and contribute. And once we have those wiki articles who are formalized, approved, and highly reusable, then we can distribute them throughout our formal systems. I like everything you just said. I'm, I'm a fan, Rashad. You, you are describing this in the ways that a lot of organizations wish they had architected the flow of knowledge. So well done. Thank you. So what's next? What's on your roadmap? What's, what's coming up? You've been there, gosh, nearly 11 years, which is an impressive <laughs> tenure. What are you going to do next? Yes. Well, no surprise, generative AI is transforming every line. No way. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of plans and uh, maybe I'll be transitioning to a new challenge. I'm still elaborating on this. Generative AI, I have a lot of, uh, let's say, questions around it. And I have done a study. I have compared the hundred solutions in the context of learning and knowledge management. A year ago, when ChatGPT came out, I asked myself and I said, okay, so there's definitely more than question answering and text generation. What are the capabilities of GPT technologies? So I have done this study, 100 solutions, and I found out 35 uh, use cases implementing 35 uh, knowledge processes, and they are much more than question answering. And I was specifically interested in tacit knowledge because today any language model, it's about explicit knowledge. I ask a question and then I get an answer. So it's a recycling or regenerating the content in a new style. If we really want to leverage this technology, we should ask how we can help in accelerating and mediating tacit knowledge and make it available to everyone. And I'm going into this direction. There is some plan into this idea. Stay tuned. Follow me on my socials. There will be something new to announce. We'll have you back to talk about it. Clearly, it's top secret for now. When uh, yep. when can we expect to hear more about this? In a month. Okay, good. Yep. So right around the corner. I'll, I'll tell you, I have a sense of where you're going, and I'm excited about it. I think there's two facets to this. The first is, AI today can do a lot of neat things. It can combine different pieces of knowledge. It can customize it for the individual. It can be predictive in serving up knowledge that somebody doesn't even know they need. But you have done something at GE Vernova that is extremely valuable to making AI work, and that's capture and structure of all this tacit knowledge. So having spent years harnessing this expertise you're in a stronger place to make AI super valuable within the organization. That's my first observation. My second is where most folks have not yet gone is that AI can play a role in actually extracting tacit knowledge. It can identify those high value moments and start asking questions in a semi-automated way at the right time to better prompt people to share knowledge. Am I on the right track? I think you revealed all my secrets. 
<laughs> All right, good. Well, then we'll definitely have you back because I want to hear more about your successes there. For now, let's move yes. to your story. So, yes. Rashad, I, I'm I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and I yes. see something kind of unique from what we see from many of the folks on KnowledgeCast. You began your career in in knowledge management. I think it was your first job in KM. Yes, it was my first job. But I didn't start directly when I graduated working in KM. And there is a story and how I discovered KM. So my first graduation diploma as a hardware engineer, I was working with the FPGAs. So those hardware pieces to design like systems on chip and CPUs. And then uh, I designed a hardware system for uh, neuromusculatic diseases. Those people having some disabilities to move their arms. And I was so glad and proud of this hardware design, but to my surprise, uh, it wasn't uh, used or adopted. And then I asked myself, why? Why it's not used? I spent a lot of time uh, designing. And I said, maybe, maybe for some reasons we need some software layer, some interface, some nice uh, GUI with colors and buttons. So I did my second graduation uh, diploma as software engineer, and then I designed a software piece and I merged hardware software together. And then the moment again, the system wasn't adopted and used. And again, to my surprise, I asked myself why it's not adopted. And then I continued my research and went through industrial engineering as my PhD. And throughout readings, I found out that what makes adoption is not really the system itself. It's the interaction with the system, the energy created around the system and the community around the system, how people engage with the system and interact and exchange. And that's exactly when I first learned the notion of communities of practice by Etienne Wenger. And then I deviated my industrial engineering PhD to designing a social system around engineering practices. And that's how I came into knowledge management. It was my first job. And then I continued with GE. Okay, there it is. That is a little bit more circuitous than LinkedIn makes it look. I feel like if KnowledgeCast had been around in the early 2000s, we probably could have saved you a few bucks in education and you could have skipped to the end. But I like that. When you look at the industry today, obviously, everybody's talking about AI. Yes. But what are you most excited about in the field right now? What do you think is going to continue to reinvent the field, continue to maintain executive interest? What's cool right now? I think uh, what's cool, uh, people are getting more awareness around knowledge management as a discipline itself. Uh, when they are not satisfied with uh, Gen AI, and yesterday it was one of uh, uh, the discussions from someone in the field, uh, we implemented the Gen AI, but we are not satisfied with the answers. Uh, and now they are starting to ask how we can improve the answer. And that will lead them to the discovery of knowledge management as a discipline. I think uh, this is the most exciting because it will bring again knowledge management as a discipline. And I hope it will be institutionalized because today uh, KM is really sponsored by individuals. And it comes down to one executive who is aware uh, of KM benefits and then he or she promotes it. But when the executive move away or transition to another job or company, 
we see the fall of the KM program. And the challenge of a KM leader is to have the next executive sponsorship. This is where I'm excited and I wish to bring more value and more weight to KM in the era of uh, AI. Phenomenal. And and you said that really well. I I always reference back to 2008 when the market crashed in the States. It was a bad year for the economy. And I was in consulting even back then. And what we saw was total KM programs got canceled, just axed. It's a nice to have, but it's not business critical. What you describe as KM is the foundation of AI is the thing that will make AI yield the value that everybody hopes and expects. As KM professionals being those who will drive the performance and the success of AI makes KM business critical and right at the center of the organization. Yes. The same story with the enterprise search engine, like maybe years ago. We want a search engine, but we are not getting results. Why? I mean, ironically, I think 50% of our listeners are probably in organizations that are still asking that question as they're also trying to figure out AI. But you are absolutely right. What I say is that a lot of the KM programs of the future might not actually mention knowledge management, but we know what it is and how critical our roles will be. So you've obviously had a ton of success and collected a few degrees in order to line that success up. But what's the guidance you would give to someone who wants to do what you've done to be successful in this cool space, this merger of of KM and learning and burgeoning field of artificial intelligence, what guidance would you give the next you? I have written down five insights to my younger version, but you know, maybe I, I, I will dismiss them. They are in front of me, but I will summarize it in a few words. Patience and perseverance. Sending Outlook emails, PowerPoints, doesn't drive change. What drives change is going and meeting one-on-one every engineer, every leader, and do it one team at a time, one building at a time, and one office at a time, and one region at a time. So I traveled to Greenville, South Carolina, and I met the people there, and I spent time with them. I listened to them. I was mindful and felt their pain points, and then I tried to to see how I can help them and solve their pain points. I think listening, double listening, being patient, perseverance, education, this kind of work need a lot of influence. Back at the time, I didn't have a team members. I was mm. one team, but I had a lot of influence management and a lot of relationship doing my management style. So those principles that are really inevitable for the success of AKM role. I love that. I, I think that that's great life advice, frankly, beyond just KM. But I, I want to pull out the one thing that really stuck with me there. It's it's listening. You met your clients where yes. they are, and you listen to them, and you learn from them, and you watch them try to work, and probably did that without a lot of assumptions or judgment, and then started talking. That is very healthy. Talk to me about how you learn and stay up to date in the field. Because clearly you've kept pace with the industry, if if not blazed the trail yourself. How do you stay sharp? It starts with curiosity. There's an inner voice inside me telling me, what if, why not, what about? So really, I can't describe it, but this is the inner gut, my curiosity that drives learning. Being curious drives learning. And then 
I changed also my learning style. Back at university, I was more into books and textbooks, but now I have shifted my learning into project-based learning. I choose hands-on projects where there is a task that I can do, I can complete and learn the outcome of those tasks. For example, there's one of the most famous and popular AI technique. It's called DRAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation. There are plenty of open source LLM models. So instead of going and reading books about LLMs, so I went and downloaded the open source on my machine LLM model, started to watch some YouTube videos, learn Python, and build, in fact, a functional prototype RAG application. And in this way, I learned what is about and how it is done. Way to invoke your learning experience, right? What's the most powerful way of learning how to do something by doing it? And there you go. You did it. Yep. Yep. So we'll close with this, Rashad. You've clearly had amazing successes at GE Vernova. For those listening and saying, geez, we really wish that we could replicate some of this. What's that one thing? What does an organization have to do? What must the KM leaders within organizations do in order to achieve the successes that you've had? Well, uh, hire me, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but aside from that, really the first thing is to have willingness to invest and have this decision to invest. And it should come from the bottom, from inside. Uh, Imposing a KM program because we want to have a KM program will not work. So first, there is a necessity, a need for KM, and there is a willingness to invest in it. And then we can get the sponsorship from all types of levels. And again, uh, it's about uh, the people, managers, top middle managers working uh, in the field showing the example and leading by example. It will not be done all at once. It will be done by iterations, by groups, one group after another. Slowly but surely, it took us around five years to reach an operational and repeatable state. It will not be done overnight. It will not be done over emails. It will take time and it will take a lot of perseverance and education. Slow and steady wins the race. Yep. Dr. Rashad Najjar of GE Vernova, organizational learning leader. Thank you so much for being on. It was a real pleasure and just a, a real fun conversation. So thank you. And it was great to reconnect. And to our listeners, thanks for joining this episode of KnowledgeCast. To check out more, visit us at enterprise-knowledge.com. Have a great day, y'all.